It's living rent-free in your mind. Maybe it's the way that your ex lied to you so easily, your friend not picking you as a bridesmaid when you thought she would, or your boss promoting your colleague over you. You thought that by now you would be over it, but you're just not. You're ruminating on it and you're giving energy to it even though it's been and gone. You know that resentment is bad for you, you don't want to feel this way, but you feel like you just can't help it. If you can relate, this is the podcast episode for you. Welcome to the Grow With Intention podcast, a podcast for people who want to create a life that feels really good. In this episode, I am interviewing Fred Luskin, the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project and the author of Forgive for Good. He is one of the world's leading researchers and teachers on the subject of forgiveness. This episode is all about forgiving as a selfish act, don't get it twisted. This isn't about condoning wrongdoings or bad behavior. It is much more about not wasting your energy on things that have passed. So I see forgiveness as this really profound mental health tool but I don't think enough people are talking about it. And I would love to hear what benefits someone would see if they started embracing forgiveness in their life. You know, that's what started me in this was the idea of benefit. Long time ago, being a researcher, I wanted to check out the interface between spirituality and emotional health. So forgiveness sits on that edge. Um, my intention was to show that a spiritual practice had real-world benefit. That was the intention behind what I did. If you conceive of holding a grudge or anger at somebody or frustration over your life as a form of stress, you can then understand how wiping that away or finding a new way of holding it so you're not burdened by it could have all sorts of positive implications. So, you know, let, let's, you broke up with somebody in a bad way and you walk past like a restaurant where you had a big fight and you go, ooh, shit, you know? And then your whole body is like all ape shit with chemicals and stuff. But if you've forgiven them, you walk by the restaurant, you go, ooh, that was a sad time. I'm, I'm glad it's, you know, I'm glad I'm through that. Yeah, that's such a good way to frame it. The, what that does to your mind and body is startling. Yeah, and I imagine it would affect your nervous system as well. And I know you talk about that a little bit. How does a lack of forgiveness affect your nervous system? Stress is a full-bodied experience. Mm. There is not a cell in your body that doesn't get the effect of adrenaline and cortisol or any of the things that they have, you know, figured out come from stress. Um, the immune system is weakened by chronic stress. The cardiovascular system is stimulated way out of need by chronic stress. The nervous system is the one probably most impacted because it doesn't get a reset. Mm -hmm. And what your nervous system and all these systems need is variance. They need to be active for a while and then quiet. So a healthy human being has some grudges, some things that they're angry with, and some things that just flat out blissed out over and so in love and so positive that the body goes like this. It goes, 
yay and nay. But they're in somebody who has a grudge that doesn't heal, the yays shrink. Mm. So there's less variance. And so your system as a whole weakens. So we're talking about forgiveness and a lot of people, when you talk about forgiveness, they're like, absolutely not. I don't want to reconcile with this person. I don't want to accept that what they did was okay. And I think that's a misunderstanding of forgiveness as you share it. I would love you to tell me what is forgiveness and what isn't forgiveness at all. You've read my book, right? Of course I have. Yeah. But we want the audience to know. (laughs) The quickest understanding of what forgiveness is is making peace with the life you've actually had. Mm-hmm. And that's a profound and simple thing. So you told me that it like took you 10 years of this to become as successful as you are, right? Yeah. So you could look back at that 10 years and say, ooh, that sucked, you know, it took me a long time. That's unforgiveness. You could look back on it with what well, I had to learn, it took time, good things develop. That's forgiveness. That's like, I'm at peace with what happened rather than fighting what happened now. Yeah. So forgiveness is actually just making peace with your actual life. That's all it is. If let's say you've dealt with a half a dozen painful things in your life and you've worked them through and and you've come out the other side, so you know, okay, I'm gonna get really upset for a while. I'm gonna blame somebody else for a while. I'm gonna feel badly about myself for a while. I'm gonna feel like a victim of crappy things for a while. But then that's gonna fade, and I'm gonna move on, and I'm gonna be, well, it is what it is, and today is what matters. When you bring that into your life, that's forgiveness as a lifestyle. So when somebody says something that's not complimentary to you, not a big deal. You just know, hey, you know, maybe I'll be upset about it for 15 seconds, but I know what will pass. So I don't want to get stuck there. And it's the conscious decision not to get stuck there. That is forgiveness as a lifestyle. It's like traffic. I don't, I don't know where you live, but around here, the traffic is awful. Yeah. So you can go out in traffic and people can have like, you know, heart problems just arguing so much with how crowded it is. Or you could go, well, I'm back in traffic again. I've been this way every day and I've survived. So I, since I know I'm going to survive, why don't I just start there? That's forgiveness as a practice. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about unenforceable rules and you say the more unenforceable rules you have, the greater likelihood that you will feel agitated and disappointed. Could you talk about what unenforceable rules are and why it's helpful to know about them? An unenforceable rule is a demand that you make on something that you don't control. So by making a demand on something that you don't control, you set yourself up for a lot of frustration. So I don't know if you have a partner or you have kids, but if you have one or the other or both, Mm -hmm. 
then we tend to have a lot of rules about how they should do stuff. So the partner should be neat. The partner should be uh, tell me the truth. The partner should want to have sex with me when I want to have sex with them, whatever it is. Those are rules that we don't control because we could be partnered with somebody who's a slob. And even though we want them to be neat, that's not them. So an unenforceable rule is a rule in our head about something, how it's supposed to happen, that we don't control, it happens, we then get all frustrated because we couldn't control it. It raises our blood pressure and it makes us feel victimized. Yeah. Is that, that makes sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So following on from that, in recent years on social media, there's been a lot of talk of boundaries and I'm sure that you've seen this around and I think it's great, you know, people need boundaries and, um, you know, we should all have them, but I've also seen an uptick in resentment alongside the boundary talk. And I think it's because a lot of people, they may be setting boundaries, but they're also creating a lot of unenforceable rules inside themselves. And I'd love for you to tell me the difference between setting a boundary and an unenforceable rule, if that's something you can talk to. We all have to have expectations, and when you call them boundaries, they're like things that trip a wire in our head that say, this behavior is not okay. Mm -hmm. So the boundary, so to speak, for romantic relationships is don't cheat on me. Mm -hmm. You know, we're faithful. As long as we're together, we're faithful. So that's a boundary. That boundary is crossed all the time. I mean, they estimate in the United States that about a third of marriages have an affair in them over the life of a marriage. Wow. I know. So that means that boundary is crossed in one out of three relationships. So you want to have the boundary, which is if you do X, then I do Y. That, yeah. That's what a boundary is. However, the boundary doesn't mean that they make that they won't do it because you don't control them. The boundary is a tripwire for our response. Mm. That's what the boundary is. It's saying, you know, okay, so flirting, yeah, I get that. You know, if you want to flirt with somebody, I don't like it, but as long as you come home and are good to everybody and you flirt every night, I can live with that. That doesn't cross the boundary. You know, 800 texts every day telling somebody how delicious they are, that crosses the boundary. So when that boundary is crossed, it's a sign for us that we have to do something. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily that we can put a line in the sand and they won't cross it. So that's the biggest misinterpretation of boundary. Yeah. It's a flare for us to go, oh, okay, this is my line. This is my, what I want. Now that they've crossed it, I need to think of what am I going to do? Mm, yeah. The, the key thing about forgiveness, when people cross those boundaries, and there's so many ways that people can cross them. They can cheat. They can lie. They can be unkind. There's unbelievable number of ways. Forgiveness doesn't say that it's okay what you did. 
forgiveness means that I'm at peace with what happened to me. Therefore, I can make better decisions about what to do about it. If I'm furious or feel victimized all the time, I'm going to make really bad decisions. So if, you know, again, if you've been cheated on by a partner sometimes, people become really hypervigilant with the next relationship, so they make stupid decisions. That's the necessity of forgiveness. So we lower the temperature so we don't see that negative in our life all the time so we can really handle our life in a better way. So when it comes to these unenforceable rules, how would someone go about challenging those rules when they notice that they're holding on to them? Well, everybody's got unenforceable rules that pop up and say, hello, I'm going to annoy you, everybody. The key thing is if you're really angry, if you're really despairing, if you're really like bitter, you have unenforceable rules. I mean, that's just a central truth of cognitive approaches to therapy. You start with the emotion, but there's a caveat. If somebody's doing something horrible to you right now, that's the healthy use of a strong emotion. So if somebody comes to your house and threatens you, it's really good to get angry. When you're thinking about it a month later, it's not so useful to be angry. So the unenforceable rule is seen by how much emotion you have. If you have a lot of negative emotion, it's because you're holding an unenforceable rule, which is they should, have, they should not have crossed this boundary of mine. The problem is when you hold that rule and it's crossed, you're helpless. You're just helpless. You, I mean, people spend years telling everybody how they shouldn't have done what they did. My boss shouldn't have fired me. My neighbor shouldn't have, you know, built their fence on my property. That guy shouldn't have said those nasty things. So you keep on saying... They shouldn't have done it, and I was helpless to stop them. And that's what a grievance story is. They shouldn't have done it. I was helpless to stop them. It's their fault. When you see an unenforceable rule like that, is all you have to do is remind yourself, people don't always do what I want. Mm. Take a deep breath. So then you can see things clearly again. And then what do I do about it? rather than trying to enforce that unenforceable rule that can't be enforced. And unfortunately, people can spend their whole life doing that. They can be 45 years old and talking about what crappy parents they had, trying to tell everybody that they deserve better parents than they got. And it's an interesting one with these unenforceable rules and holding a grievance in general, because it almost gives you this feeling of self-righteous anger that feels a little addictive. You know, you sit in that rumination and you get grumpy and you're like, they're wrong, I'm right. And people seem to cling on to these, you know, grudges that they hold. Are there reasons why, you know, rewards that people get from holding on to these unenforceable rules in a way? Two-part answer. One is you're absolutely right. There's an addictive quality to it. They're just finding out that anger over time 
can stimulate dopamine. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's just, I'm, I'm talking to some people who this is like the cutting edge of their work. Wow, I'm fascinated. That's so interesting. I know. I feel that too. But the chronic repetition of, you know, I've been badly treated. I've been this. Anger is a response that hides our vulnerability. So instead of grieving the problem, which acknowledges that I was vulnerable, I couldn't do anything about it, and I simply need to grieve it and let it go, people practice anger to make themselves feel stronger. That practice actually fills up some of those dopamine receptors. So we anticipate the good feeling of anger and how it's going to give us a small boat burst of juice. And so it does have that addictive quality, which is mediated by dopamine. So you were right about that. That's so interesting. I feel very I mean, validated because I've noticed it in myself as well. I mean, I'm not perfect. I've got grudges and I'll, I'll sit there with my grudge and I'll be like, oh, this feels very similar to like, I don't know, eating a, a lolly. You know what I mean? It's very interesting. We all have that. Yeah. The unenforceable rule piece, and this is challenging for people, for most people, most of the time, not all people all the time, the thought precedes the emotion. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that my emotion is the important thing. Underneath most emotions, not all, not, not in serious trauma sometimes, and not in real short-term threat, in both of those situations, the emotion can precede the thought. Right. But for most things, the thought precedes the emotion. So our thought says, this is a terrible thing that they did. I don't deserve that behavior. That thought leads to the emotion. When you change the thought around, well, I wish they hadn't have done it, but they did and I have to deal with it, then you've taken away the unenforceable part, and then you can deal with it. Unenforceable rules are like signs that between your ears, you're thinking about things in ways that make you suffer more. And that's the key ingredient of it. And that's the shame of it. Because I listen to so I even I mean, like you said it, you can hear it in your own head. But when you make a habit of it, and it becomes a practice that you're used to, and there are habits that are reinforced by the dopamine mechanism, it becomes very hard to let that go. In female friendships and it may be a male friendships too it's really common to vent like venting is just a common practice it's, you know I need a vent I just need to get it out um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this is it healthy to vent ever you know can you get one vent out and then you're done what are the what are your thoughts around venting <laughs> the answer to that is there is nothing wrong with venting okay what becomes dangerous is when venting becomes a habit. 
what they have shown is the habit of venting is not good for your emotional and in particular your physical health. Because when you practice venting and it becomes wired into your brain, it becomes very challenging to get it out. So if somebody does something that you don't approve of and you turn around from your mic and scream and throw something against the wall and curse at them and, you know, that goddamn whatever and you stomp your feet and you act like you're nine years old and you do a full on like hissy fit for five minutes, that's fine. Yeah. You don't want to do that often. If your best friend lies to you, and that might be a good moment to stomp your feet, throw something, you know, E2 ding-dongs, whatever the heck you want to do, that moment of venting can be really helpful. You recognize, I am so angry at this. I feel so betrayed by this deep in my bones. The venting is to give you a cognitive understanding of what's going on. So when you're venting, it's a clear sign that this really wasn't okay by me. Once you know that, you don't need to vent so much anymore. You can still, like, if you want advice, it's like vent once or twice. Tell a couple people how awful this is. And then start to dwindle those um, frequencies. Yeah. Okay. And that leads really nicely into my next question, actually, which was all about, you said in your book, there are very few instances where the long-term use of anger will be of help to you. And that once the situation has passed, both the long-term naming of angry feelings and expression of anger rarely leads to good results. So I think that you covered this quite well, really, but I want to talk a little bit about the constructive use of anger and the destructive use of anger. I find anger a really interesting topic. Um, I've talked about it with a lot of friends and we're all really like, what do we do when anger comes up? Are we allowed to be angry? Or like, do we move straight to forgiveness practices? Or, you know, should we be journaling angry about it? Or, you know, it's, it's hard to know when to express anger and when to move straight to, no, I need to reframe and forgive and et cetera. Forgiveness comes after the anger has been both destructively and constructively expressed. Forgiveness is like, okay, you spray on the stuff to clean your window. First, it makes it dirtier. And then you start cleaning it. Forgiveness is you can just go back and see through the window again. Constructive anger is I get angry at something or somebody to try to solve a real problem. So if somebody was hurting one of my children, it's a constructive anger to go and yell and stop. If my partner was coming home drunk, then getting in their face and saying, I am pissed, stop, 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 stop. That's constructive anger. Destructive anger is when you try constructive anger 10 times and it doesn't do you any good. Mm. Continuing it is no longer constructive because you already know it doesn't work. 
destructive anger is anger that doesn't have an opportunity to solve the problem. Constructive anger is anger that does have an opportunity to solve a problem. So I'll give you an example from my life from decades ago. I don't, you know, with friends, I don't get angry that often. I don't know if I'm a forgiving person, but mm -hmm. I, I have a high bar for like getting pissed off. And we invited an old friend to Thanksgiving maybe 15 years ago. And he said something. He's a difficult person, but, you know, I yelled at him that day for just, I said, just stop it. I can't take your, like, whatever. And he looked at me like, Fred, you've never been angry like that at me before. Wow, I better stop. Because it wasn't chronic. It was he could really hear that a line had been crossed. And so that was all the information he needed as, wow, okay, if Fred's pissed, I must be out on Mars somewhere, you know, like, so the constructive piece is also limited by how often you do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you're with a partner who's angry a lot, you learn to tune it out and, and you don't see it as constructive. You see it as destructive, like there they are again. So constructive anger means we have a wired neurobiology for anger. Like we have a template in our nervous system, every human being does, for the potential of anger. It's a very important human element. You want to be careful that you use it sparingly and where it will be of help. Destructive anger is the repetitive anger that doesn't help or the anger at the wrong person. So, you know, you're treated crappily at work and then you come home and yell at your kids. Mm. That's destructive anger. Constructive anger has social use for us. Destructive anger has much less. If you're listening to this episode and you resonate with the ideas in it, you might have a specific resentment that you feel like you're struggling to let go. This is your reminder that Fred has a really great book, Forgive for Good. It has 952 reviews and a 4.6 star rating on Amazon. I've read it. I got so much out of it. This, this podcast episode, honestly, even though it's pretty long, it just scratches the surface when it comes to the when it comes to moving into forgiveness. If you want more actionable ideas, check out Fred's book. It's going to be linked in the show notes. I have a question for you and I only thought of this question yesterday. I didn't really prep you for it. So if you don't have an answer, that's fine. Just let me know. I heard you say in an interview, it was a bit of a hot take. You said, most people have too much self-forgiveness and yeah. not enough forgiveness for others. I'm really interested in that. Tell me what that means. It's one of the things that I have come to after all these years of doing therapy, of teaching. So let me tell you, I can tell you the moment where that first came to me. It was a long time ago. I was doing couples therapy and there were a man and a woman really not liking each other. And one of the partners, I think it was the woman, said to the man, how 
dare you say that? That's how my father used to treat me. And you have no right to do that. Okay. And I'm watching and I'm a baby therapist and I have no idea what I'm doing. And these people are so much better at being angry than I am at being a therapist. I, I had no idea what to do. I'm just sitting there like, shit, people really treat each other this way? I mean, I'm like, but something hit me. That that woman owed her partner an apology because she hadn't healed herself. It wasn't the partner's fault that he triggered her. It was her responsibility to make herself less triggerable. Ooh, that's a spicy take. <laughs> when you look at that, like we're responsible for our behavior. Yeah. You look at then how much we don't take that responsibility by forgiving ourselves too often or too quickly. She needed to forgive herself to take it out on her partner. Very quickly she did because otherwise she would have had to say, hey, what the heck am I doing? I'm yelling at somebody that had nothing to do with this. So I started to notice that a huge problem was people are too easy on themselves and therefore other people have to make up for that. So instead of saying, wow, I screwed up on how I reacted to you, we double down on how badly you treated somebody. Yeah. The key to self-forgiveness is not primarily changing how you feel, but doing actions that make it likely that you won't do it again. Yeah. And so misuse self-forgiveness by being too easy on our flaws. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have seen that in myself and other people. It's so easy to be like, well, they did this wrong and I, me, absolutely nothing wrong. I'm incredible. Um, but yeah, it's an easy thing to default to. Michelle, we're all part of the same human race. And it doesn't matter that you're in Australia and you're like half my age. We have the same brains and the same issues for trying to make peace with our own life. Mm. Both good and bad. There's one thing you did not ask me. I don't know if you want me to bring it up. Sure, yeah. The real importance as part of forgiveness of practicing gratitude. Ah, yes, yes. Talk to me about the impact of there, gratitude. There is, there is no forgiveness without gratitude. In order to forgive, you have to learn how to see the good in life. You have to learn to appreciate other people's good qualities. You have to, inside of yourself, figure out a way to balance the beauty of life with the ugliness of life. Mm. The ugliness of life is there. People treat each other terribly. People make horrible mistakes. They do terrible things. But if you look, there was so much beauty and so much kindness 
and so much caring, but you have to take a moment to see it so that you have a better perspective for handling the unkindness and cruelty and selfishness that's there. Yeah. One of the undiscovered cores of forgiveness is we have to raise our capacity to see the good. There's a very simple meditation that I use for that to teach people to see the good. I just do it in 15 seconds. Like just yeah. stop for a moment. Just stop what you're doing. And just try to look over your last day, the last 24 hours, for where were people good to you? Mm. Just stop, like literally stop. And try to look back over just one day. Did anybody love you? Did anybody say nice things to you? Did anybody listen to you, bitch? Did anybody feed you or hug you or anything? And if you stop, every now and then and just like slow the machine down and look back your heart opens you're immediately more open to forgive right now something that you do talk about in your book is becoming a hero instead of a victim in the story that you tell about your grievance to move towards forgiveness i'd love to hear you talk about why that's important and how someone might go about that being a victim in a story is really helpful short term. Mm -hmm. It allows us to integrate things that have happened that we didn't want to have happened that were painful. So again, simple partner cheats. First response, what the hell were they doing? Why did they do it? It's their fault. Everything's their fault. Poor me. I had nothing to do with this. I'm blameless. They're terrible. That is a defense against seeing the picture bigger and closer to reality. But it's a necessary defense because we can't take in so much information that cripples our, our ego structure and so challenges the narrative we have about our life. We have to take that in in doses. Mm. So you have to create some kind of poor me story at first to protect yourself. Then the hopeful part of people who are resilient and who are strong enough to use what happens to them to end up with new stories that are deeper and stronger, where they're a hero, they have to go from that victim, I'm helpless, to yeah, I didn't like or want this, and I either helped contribute to it, like I wasn't the world's greatest partner, and the relationship wasn't that good, or the person only wanted pleasure for themselves. It had nothing to do with me. That's one response. Another response is to say, well, you know, they taught me something about themselves. Like, they're not for me. Not I'm not coming home to this anymore, or I really love them, and I think they really love me, and so I'm willing to try to work this through if we can. Those are all stories of strength. So you want to go from that victim story to a story of strength, which then allows you to re-engage in the world without having to feel helpless. 
when you're in a victim mode, you're helpless. Like I had nothing to do with, it's all bad. It's just poor me. Those are not mental commands that give us a certain power and allow us to take good action for ourselves. So the forgiveness journey is from a story of helpless victimhood of either anger and self-pity from that through grief, which is this really sucks, to some kind of survivor place where you acknowledge the pain, but it's in the past. Here I am, you know, a little bit wiser, maybe a little bit stronger, hopefully a little bit more humble, but something has grown from it. Do you have time to talk about the power of creating a positive intention to speed up the forgiveness process? Forgiveness is a change in story. It, it's a lot of other things around it. But ultimately, the story that we tell to ourselves and other people changes. Mm -hmm. The positive intention is a kind of story. So the story we start out with is looking back. My parents were horrible. My sister was horrible. My grandma was horrible. Whoever was horrible. We're looking back. By the time people are like your age, most of the unforgiveness stories are romantic partnerships. There are so many crappy exes running around that it's like hard to believe. But anyway, so you start out with a story about how the past was not good. Mm -hmm. The positive intention story says or asks, well, what did you want out of the situation? So if you were with a crappy lover, you wanted a good partner. If you were in a rotten job, you wanted a good job. Unfortunately, when we're wounded, we spend too much time talking about the crappy lover or the rotten job. The positive intention story says, well, what was it that you wanted? So if you wanted a loving relationship or a good place to work where your skills were respected, that needs to be the story. So my story is finding love. My story is finding a good home for my skills. Then the bad experience is just a small piece of that. It's not the driver of the story. And that's how you go forward, which is, yes, this relationship didn't work. Yes, this job didn't work. This friend didn't work. But I'm not giving up on any of those things. But they're a piece of my bigger story, not the center character in the story. And when you do that, you have so much freedom because they don't dominate. And the story is not just looking back. It's looking ahead. And that's, that's what the forgiveness piece is. I can now look ahead. Yeah. I have two more questions for you. My first one being, if someone was just forgiving their forgiveness journey, so they've been holding on to a grudge for some time now, aside from buying your book, which they absolutely should do, where would you recommend they kick off that forgiveness journey? What kind of practices should they integrate into their life? Maybe week by week, day by day? Everybody's got one right? Everybody's got something they're holding on to, okay? First step is recognize that. So if you really recognize that, 
everybody's got something. Everybody's stuck in something. If you really can hold that, you will relax your body and you will breathe a little more deeply because it's not just this personal problem. It's a human problem. So when you can take a deeper breath and you can breathe into and out of your belly, like when you can just breathe around it, the temperature of the problem goes down. So then you can talk about it in a different way. And that's how you begin. Let me give you one more moment because I know you've read it. While you're sitting there, just sitting there, picture someone you really love. Just while you're sitting there, in your mind's eye, just picture someone you absolutely adore. But don't pick somebody you had a fight with an hour ago, even though you absolutely adore them. Just picture right here in your mind's eye, somebody you absolutely adore. Feel it here, right here. You know, like, I love you. You don't have to say anything, but, but feel that warmth from adoring. When you feel that warmth, check in with that place in you. Well, how do I deal with this? The part of me that's loving and kind and gentle, you want to invite it to the party. You want to say, hey, we got a party. Unfortunately, the nasty guys are the only ones who show up, the ones who tell me to feel sorry for myself, or the ones who have me angry, or the ones who make me seem like I'm the only person that this ever happened to. All those people show up for the party. But the guy or the woman in here, you know, who says, hey, honey, we love you no matter what. Or, you know, you got a damn good life. Chill a little bit. Or no matter what happens, you'll be okay. We want to invite them to the party. So when I asked you to first just take a deep breath and like realize that what happened to you or anybody is normal, it frees your brain from the adrenaline cortisol explosion that comes from holding a grudge and puts the kinder parts of your brain back online. Mm. And so that's so central to what we're doing. You send out invitations to people who haven't been invited to that party for 10 years. A lot of people, when I have talked about forgiveness on my channel before, the first thing they say is, I just can't stop replaying arguments in my mind, you know, making up fake scenarios and, and whatnot. Is that a practice that they should engage in when they find themselves in that rumination state? Ruminations are a really difficult human problem. Have you ever had an experience that you ruminated over? Oh my gosh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Wish I hadn't. <laughs> Me too. It's a response by the nervous system that we don't know how to handle it. And it's like the nervous system having an autoimmune problem where it just keeps on a loop that doesn't know what to do because the attempt to make things better has failed. And it's almost like not a cancer cell, but it's just like going on and on and on. Rumination is a real problem. And it's not something to be taken lightly because it is a very challenging human experience. And when people ruminate on things, in particular grievances, it makes it much harder for them 
to make peace with things. It, this is not modest. It is essential for someone who has a ruminative history to find a diversion. It doesn't matter what the diversion is. Like, you know, when you catch yourself ruminating, you could stick your head in the refrigerator for all that matters. It's just, <laughs> I mean, obviously don't stick your head in the oven because that's not good for you. That would be bad. That would be bad. Yep. <laughs> and probably wouldn't help in the long run. But you could take a piece of chewing gum. You could walk in a circle. You could take a deep breath. You could picture someone you love. You could walk outside and just look at nature and go, oh my God, it is beautiful. But you have to create a response that is part of the habit pattern. And that's how you can interdict a rumination without it going on for too long. So you just add something to it. I notice I'm obsessing, and you can do this obsessing about anything. Like I'm notice I'm obsessing that I've gained five pounds. But instead of trying to get it to stop, add something to it that doesn't um, cooperate with that. So a good thing might be to walk 20 feet, 10 feet, something that burns off a calorie, or go lift a weight for a minute, or swing your arms around, or move some exercise thing, so that you get into the habit of counter-conditioning the rumination response, it weakens it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's habitual, isn't it? I'm taking up too much of your time, but I do have one last question, but very quick. I want to ask this to all of my guests. I like to share a few recommendations at the end of my show, like books, TV shows, anything really that I've been into lately. Do you have any recommendations, the things that you've been into lately? It could be related to your work. It could be completely unrelated. You know, a recommendation, it won't be about me. The most important thing for forgiveness is to practice a small act of forgiveness today towards someone you love. That is the most important use of forgiveness. So if the honey comes home, the partner, let go of some piece of crap that you're holding and just hug them. If your dog happens to make a mess on the floor, kiss them. The most important use of forgiveness is not for the bad people out there, honestly. It's to keep and repair the relationships that are important to us, including towards ourselves. So that would be my recommendation. And now it's time for my recs of the week. Every episode, I give at least three recommendations based on the podcast episode topic. For those of you who want to dive even deeper into the subject at hand, the first and most obvious recommendation of this podcast episode are Fred Luskin's books. I've read them. I picked Fred specifically because I enjoyed his books so much and they had such an impact on me. The next recommendation I'm going to give you is another book and it's called How to Stubbornly Refuse to Make Yourself Miserable by Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis actually does talk about unenforceable rules. He has a different word for them. But if you're interested in unenforceable rules particularly and you're like, yeah, I can tell I definitely have those unenforceable rules, Albert Ellis also talks about them in a different way to Fred. The next recommendation is a bit of a self-plug, but it's also deeply relevant. And that is my new program on my app Intention. If you struggle with rumination, I recently created a course called Train Your Brain for Happiness, The Ultimate Guide to Stop Overthinking. So if you have a rumination habit and you're like, damn, like this is getting in the way of my life. I'll have the link to download it in the show notes. And to finish up this podcast, we're talking mini moves. 
at the end of every episode, I give you at least two mini moves that you can make immediately, whether it's today or this week, to put what you have learned in this podcast into practice. Mini move number one, take a minute at the end of your day today, or even at the end of this podcast episode, and reminisce on all of the good things, all of the nice things that people did, all the moments of loveliness, the kind thing that your colleague said, the nice thing that your partner did. Hold on to them, relive them. I'd also suggest reminiscing on the nice things that you did for other people. This sounds a little bit self-absorbed, but it's been shown to be helpful too. A part of letting go of any resentments in your life is focusing on the good. And Fred talks a lot more about that in his book. And he did talk a little bit about it in this podcast episode. Mini move number two. Think of an area of your life where an unenforceable rule exists. Everyone has unenforceable rules. We probably all have them in different varieties, but they're gonna exist somewhere. Then what you want to do in your mind with your unenforceable rule is turn it around into a preference. And if you'd like a boundary, just tweaking those words in your mind, you're gonna feel relief. Turning a should into a preference, a game changer. If you're enjoying my podcast episodes and you want to find more content like this, download my app Intention. It is linked down in the show notes. It's the place to go when you want to take a bit more action on these podcast episodes as well as my YouTube content. Download Intention using the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you soon.